Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Rajanica podcast. My name is Doug Lafarge. Uh, some of you know me by nature. I'm going to be your guest host for these few episodes. What I mean by guest host is that uh, this is going to be ongoing changing of hosts while we have the guest being the same. That would be uh, Douglas Brooks. We're going to start off with in this podcast with talking about Rajanica origins. And with that, I'm just going to turn it straight over to Douglas. Well, thanks, Nature. It's really happy to be here. You know, Rajanika began in India likely centuries ago in its own way because the origins of Rajanika really are with my teacher, Appa. His name was, of course, uh, Gopala Ayer Sundramurti. Appa was born in 1936 in the small village of Chedavamani, deep in South India and in Tamil country. And I won't tell his whole story, but to say that uh, at a very young age, he and his mother and sister moved to the great temple city of Chidambaram. That's, of course, where Nataraja does the great dance. And through a host of complicated circumstances, Appa's life uh, ended up being very much a part of the temple, and he was, in fact, adopted by a family of temple priests. The temple priests of Nataraja are called Dikshitars, uh, the Sabanayaka Dikshitar is how they refer to themselves, and that is that is to say the initiated ones of those uh, who serve the the Lord of the Sabha, the Lord of the enclosure, and that enclosure is Nataraja's sanctum in the temple. So this is a subcast of Brahmins, and Appa himself was born into the Brahmin caste. Um, the caste is technically called Ayer. And those Ayur Brahmins are not the same exactly as the Chidambaram Dikshitars. So all Chidambaram Dikshitars are Ayurs, but not all Ayurs are Chidambaram Dikshitars. So when Appa was adopted into his family by a Dikshitar named uh, Ratna Raja Dikshitar, he had a wonderful and peculiar relationship because he had all of the intimacies of the temple, but technically he was disqualified from being a sanctum priest because he wasn't born into the Dikshitar subcaste. And so what this meant was that uh, this talented little boy ended up becoming quite learned and scholarly, and Raja Ratna Dikshitar, among the priests, was renowned for his own scholarship and his own relationship uh, to the deep lore and practice of the temple. The vast majority of the priests are are quite competent and and thoroughgoing stewards of the rituals of Nataraja and the festival life that surrounds Chidambaram Nataraja. But a very handful of them are Shastris. That word Shastri in Sanskrit means learned in the texts. And Appa's own father was a Shastri. Uh, His father died when he was but nine months old. And so he and his mother eventually found their way to Chidambaram. And she ended up being my pati, my grandmother, Appa's mother. She ended up being uh, a caretaker for 
the pilgrims who would come to Chidambaram to visit Nataraja and were, in fact, the clients of Raja Nadikshatar. This is an ordinary practice uh, in the temple life. Appa himself was sent to school and uh, often talked about how he would walk through the temple each morning to go to the government school on the far side of town. And then he would go home, and because he had been officially adopted by the temple priest, he would receive a portion of the temple's rice uh, offerings for the day. So he often quipped that it was Nataraja himself who took care of him, who took care of his family, and who fed him all those very many years. That story continues, but Appa was a prodigiously talented and gifted child, and it's plain from all of the records we have of him. And he grew up, importantly, in this community of Nataraja priests, and particularly in that community where the conversations of yoga, the conversations of philosophy and mythology and the interpretation of that uh, material was all part and parcel of their daily life. And there were specific kinds of kulas, communities, gatherings, sometimes they were called mandalis, circles, where these shastris would gather and each of them would make a specific contribution. And so Appa became part of the larger conversation of shastris, of learned priests and scholars of Sanskrit, who were the stewards of Nataraja. And then among them, there were another group that were particularly interested uh, in the goddess traditions, not just the goddess traditions of Chidambaram, the goddess who is the consort of Nataraja, is a very wonderful and, and beautiful image called um, Shiva Kama Sundari, the beautiful one who is Shiva's desire. And so there's a Nataraja and Shiva Kama Sundari phenomenon, but also among these Shastris is the important tradition that we nowadays call Srividya or auspicious wisdom. And Srividya technically finds its way inside the temple, principally in images and in ideas. Um, at several places in the temple, we'll see a Sri Chakra, you know, the nine interlacing triangle yantra. The Sri Chakra or Sri Yantra is a kind of pivotal marker. It's a giveaway to the presence of, of Sri Vidya. And it's largely ubiquitous now in Shaiva temples, Shiva-centered temples, and in goddess temples in South India. So Appa ended up in a conversation about Nataraja inside the Shaiva Nataraja community inside the temple. And inside that community, a small coterie of priests very much interested in Srividya, the auspicious wisdom of the goddess. And just one more note about that, too, is that Srividya is an exceedingly learned, um, almost effete tradition of conversation. Uh, the it, it, it ends up being very much a, 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 a way in which those with deep and serious interests in the evolution of Indian thought, particularly from yoga into Tantra and the extension of Tantra from the devotional traditions, the bhakti traditions. And so Sri Vidya becomes a way for these priests and others around them to talk about the ideas and sources and materials that are used in tantric ritual that would otherwise become more problematic because Tantra has as you know, 
a pretty tawdry reputation. Um, it can be it's easily misunderstood, but it also warrants much of its bad reputation. And Trividya in South India has always been a way for these people from these orthoprax Brahmin communities to find a way to talk about the Tantra in serious and meaningful ways without entering into some of that more transgressive and problematic territory. So about by the time he is in his teens, has a number of teachers. Um, Raja Ratna Dikshitar, who is the temple priest who has adopted him, is has a community around him. And we could list the names of those priests who are in that early mandali, that early circle. And that goes back some generations as well. In addition, uh, Appa's own uncle, his Pariyapa, whose name was Gopalakrishnan, was quite an excellent scholar of the Samaveda and of other facets of the Sri Vidya. So he, these were Brahmins deeply rooted in the antiquity of Vedic learning and the oldest lore passed along in Sanskrit. And they had moved their way through the literature of the Tantra towards Sri Vidya, which is a kind of meeting point, an inflection, a place to collect all of that learning and and put it all under one umbrella. And what make what made Rajanaka happen was that somewhere in his late teens, um, when Appa was preparing for college, the conversation turned as well towards other kinds of developments in their culture and society. Appa was a champion of women's rights, of gay rights, of inclusion and and allowing and inviting people into the conversation itself in ways that historically caste had left them out. And Sundramurti and his friends here, his, his teachers and conversationalists, were, were keen on changing that. They were all children of Indian independence. They were all educated under the British Raj as children. And they were all part of the Brahmin caste who in so very many ways were the oppressors, the misogynists and and the excluders. And Appa thought that that was deeply and profoundly wrong. Now, he didn't come to that all on his own. This is kind of an important note about Rajanika's history. When you visit Nataraja at Chidambaram, the usual strictures, as it were, of caste and exclusion that we would ordinarily see are are stripped away. The Nataraja temple is peculiar in that way because not because of the way Nataraja himself is featured in his sanctum. There would be no way in 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 effect to restrict access to seeing Nataraja. So just by going into the temple, um, you can get, as it were, very close to the sanctum. You can get direct darshan, direct experience of the Nataraja image in the inner sanctum. This is quite different than other Shaivite temples, and we can talk about that again another time. So one of the provisions of the Nataraja temple is simply that everyone is welcome who comes with a certain degree of respect and propriety for the rules um, and for how one engages the terms of the temple. And it's a feature of all Hindu temples that there's no test of belief. 
There's no catechism. No one's going to quiz you about why you're there or what you think or what you feel or how you believe. And priests don't really entertain those questions either. Those issues of personal conviction and individual experience are kind of entirely your own to have. And so that was off the table. What is on the table when you go to the temple is that you behave according to the temple's sense of propriety, according to its rules. And those are pretty simple rules. And 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 yet they're they're deeply welcoming. Uppa was fond of telling a story that when he was once as a child, the president of India came to visit the Nataraja temple, and Uppa was right there during that visit. And one of the provisions of the temple is that to enter the closest sanctum of Nataraja, men must remove their shirts. Uh, the joke I always like to tell is that, you know, like, you know how it says, like, at the 7 Eleven, no shoes, no shirt, no service? Well, at the temple, <laughs> you have to, it's, it's no shoes, no shirt, that's service. So, and the, the uh, president of India on this occasion didn't want to remove his shirt, and yet he wanted this intimate darshan experience this exchange of views with Nataraja. And the priest politely denied him and said, well, everyone follows all the same rules here because everyone is welcome. So Appa grew up literally in the temple and walking through the temple and in these conversations and in the conversation of auspicious wisdom. And we can talk a little bit too about, about what that means because this was also an attempt to revolutionize that conversation. I mean, as I said, Appa was a social and political revolutionary born of, born of Indian independence, and he was proud of that and, and, and thought it important. And because his mother was a widow from his childhood, he also was keen to, to note her own feelings and the experiences she had. And while he wasn't about to tell his mother what she could and couldn't do, uh, you know, my pati, my grandmother, fastidiously applied herself herself to the rules and to the customs of Brahmin widowhood. And those are no simple matter. Um, a Brahmin widow like Appa's mother would remove her sari blouse and spend the rest of her life in nine yards of saffron rags. She would shave her head. She would never go to another particularly auspicious gathering, like a wedding or some other family event. She would be marked forever and always as a kind of inauspicious presence. Now, Patti was the matriarch of our family, and widows aren't entirely ostracized. That's an unfair characterization of, of what really happens in their lives. But Ebba was keen to this experience of his mother really suffering under the customs of, of Brahmin life where she self-excluded herself because he would never have, have countenanced her being excluded. But he wanted to change that. He, he often said to me that, you know, my mother's choices here follow the old customs, but this has to go. This has to change. And none of my daughters or our nieces are going to suffer like this. We're going to be subject to these terms of of widowhood and self-abnegation that follows from it. And so he had a very personal stake as well in changing the conversation, both socially and, and, and personally in his own life. But also, I think it deeply affected 
his understanding of the world, his understanding tempered as well by the temple's deep interest in being more inclusive, that the Nataraja world was not like other temples, that people could come as they are and with a certain degree of propriety, they would be welcomed as they are. And so when I showed up, and this was in 1977, I was very much, I think, seen by Appa as as a serious and, and, and curious student, as someone who had come looking for the conversation. I didn't know what that conversation was or what it would mean or how it would affect my life. Particularly, I had my own my own naive and romantic ideas as you know, just barely a teenager showing up in India as a college student and finding this man. And the short of the matter is that he invited me into his life and into his home, into his family, as if I were taken up off the street, much the way he was as an orphan. It took me very many years to realize that Appa saw in me much of his own experience, that he had he he was a serious and sincere seeker his whole life from the time he was a little boy. And he was looking for a conversation. He was looking for love. He was looking for a place where that experience would be inclusive and, and he could feel part of it. And he had been taken in off the street with his mother and sister, essentially as orphans, and brought into that world. And so he did the very same for me, and he wanted that for everyone. Many years later, we were involved in creating a school, and the principals of that school, which are, that school is called Sri Vidyalaya. It's in the city of Madurai, where Appa was university professor of Sanskrit. And But that school is based on these very same principles, the principles that capture the ethos and the sensibilities of Rajanaka. That is, that we're interested in, in learning and in education, principally, above all things, uh, opportunity and potential, inclusion, that anyone who comes is welcome, that religion or gender or some other circumstance of birth, none of these are requisites or prohibitions. There are no prerequisites or qualifications. Come with an open heart. Come with a willing mind. Uh, come prepared to have a good conversation. And then the learning begins. So the learning of Rajanika began in these conversations. And I said that it, it went back generations um, in terms of the content of the material. So Rajanika really starts in a body of mythology and imagery, in ritual and custom that centers uh, in the in the in the long and complex story that will take us from the character we call Rudra of the Veda, who's a very fantastically wild and ferocious proto Shiva character. Rudra of the Veda is the one who howls and weeps and bleeds, and he's a fantastically captivating character of this most ancient lore and how that character transforms himself into the auspicious one, into the the god we call Shiva. And then the iterations of Shiva and the complexities of the evolution of Shiva will eventually take us to his apotheosis, to the epitome of all Shaivite forms, that being the dancer who we call Nataraja. So, 
Rajataka begins in the imagery and in the study and the story of Nataraja, and of all Shaivite stories uh, involve the great goddess, and the great goddess who is auspicious wisdom herself. That is, she too represents the culmination and the apotheosis of tradition. So, uh, bringing those two magnificently erudite and, and serious conversations of literature, poetry, philosophy, mythology, art, the living traditions of a tantric yogic practice, we can talk about what that means another time, that was the heart and soul of Rajanaka, and that it goes back at least in its modern form to about 900 before the Christian era. That's when we really trace the relationship of this combination of Nataraja's temple arriving at a recognizable form. That temple goes back tens of centuries um, before then, but let's just say about 900 or so deep in South India, in Tamil country, where the Nataraja cult meets, as it were, the auspicious wisdom, these traditions of great goddess conversation, and these mythologies merge and, and converge over all kinds of issues of how we understand ourselves as natural beings, how we interact as social and cultural beings, how we invent ourselves as humans, and matters of individual conscience and individual self-cultivation and evolution and education. So Nataraja becomes that first point of reference, and then the great goddess herself. We put those together, and this conversation evolved generations before Appa, and he is very much part of that legacy. What he and his colleagues really did was evolve that conversation, push it forward into issues of human rights and civil rights, and humanized the very projects of yoga towards a more inclusive education. And that began the conversation that we call Rajanika probably before Appa's own life. Uh, Rajaratna and the older generation had already taken up these tasks and, and were interested in broadening the conversation. And then when Appa showed up and came of age, as it were, things really really moved forward very quickly because he and his friends were very serious seekers. They were scholars. They And they always understood their practices of yoga and their practices of deep engagement and scholarship to be one and the same. And so Rajanika has always taken the idea that, that our education is comprehensive and that our spirits and our hearts are as much a part of the process of cultivating our minds and our energies of learning. You know, you really hit on so many different things I want to ask questions about. Um, and I have to say that the so much of the time that I've spent with you, I've heard this story, you know, more than once, let's just say. Um, but there's always more in it. This is one of the takeaways I guess I'm, I'm, I'm kind of gathering from this. Um, I've got three or four questions I kind of want to follow up on. I'm not sure I really want to get to that right now. But um, how do you take – maybe this is the one that I'm most curious about is trying to transition these origins in, from past historical, you spending your time 
or before you spent your time or even before APA to the origins within you and within your learning so that, you know, as we move further along in our discussion in these episodes, we can kind of evolve that into, you know, where it came from, where it is and and where it's going. Do you kind of want to go in that direction? (laughs) Well, I think, well, thank you for asking. Um, I haven't said much about myself in this because I, I think that the story of Rajanika's origins, you know, begins in India, it, it, but it begins in every seeker's heart. And I think that what made what made me uh, see in Appa what I wasn't seeing in other in other other parts of my own life, um, and I don't need to digress too far here into talking about my own experience or my own childhood, but. When I met him, I was very much a seeker and and deeply, personally uh, disenchanted with the past, but also enchanted. And I came to India looking for a guru, looking for the traditions of liberation and freedom from the world. And I came knowing only as much as I knew that an 18-year-old with, with the most perfunctory experience and, and, and the most sort of elementary exposure might have had. And when I met Appa, um, I think what he saw was, was curiosity and real seriousness and sincerity. And I think that that's the first kind of characteristic of Rajanika that comes to my that comes to mind for me you know an open heart a willing mind a real curiosity and, and a willingness to kind of listen first and become more receptive we think of receptivity as a great gift of the goddess we think of that as one of when we say the goddess one of the things we mean is our ability to receive and our ability to to make an offering that comes from that place of sincerity and seriousness without much expectation or any expectation particularly of reward, but that the purpose of seeking is itself worthy and the pursuit of one's own curiosity is a gift of, of being human. And, and Uppa was very much, I think, um, acknowledging and respecting that in me before he knew anything about me, accepting me very quickly into his life and and then bringing me into his home, which was an immensely sort of risky thing to do. He didn't really know anything about me. And here he's essentially invited this Western kid who's barely more than a teenager to live in his home. Um, and then when we first lived together, there were 13 of us in four rooms. Um, that was our, our first experience together. And with with his children still small, and his his daughters and nieces, and and the kind of cultural circumstances of having a foreigner in their midst, and 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 a non Brahmin living in their home, up his generosity and his willingness to take a risk, I think, were a, a testament to his his good character. You know, the way he was willing to be accepting and receptive and. He very much wanted to learn about my own life and how I had arrived there. But I think that the heart of the matter is that is that I came to learn and I came curious in a way that 
I was completely unprepared for where he was taking me because, as we know, Rajanika is a tradition that doesn't have, uh, doesn't vest authority and power in the guru, and it certainly doesn't teach any supernormal or supernatural concept of liberation. It took a while for for me to realize that I came asking for one thing, and Uppa was willing to tell me about those histories and traditions. He was willing to clearly explain the history of yoga to me, which is, of course, dominated by the traditions of liberation from samsara, liberation from the everyday and ordinary sufferings of a world made of time and banality and 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 deliver you into some kind of beatific awakening or a state of accomplishment or perfection, what the tradition is called siddha or buddha or any of those words for the enlightened and awakened being. And one would be led there naturally by someone who has already achieved that state or who is learned enough to teach the methods and the forms that lead to that state. That would be what the tradition traditionally calls the teacher, the guru. I came looking for both liberation and the guru. And in a very short time, um, those both uh, became issues that we talked about at length. I think, you know, I look back on it now because Appa was dissuading me or, or changing me or, or pivoting me in quite another direction. Um, there's, of course, a great deal of love and respect and demurral to expertise, to virtuosity, to great learning, to providence and tradition, because we need to respect those that have come before us who have done the work and who have real accomplishments in life. And Appa was an immensely accomplished scholar who had the credentials on the wall to prove it as well. I mean, not, not all that withstanding, he made no... He made it a point, I think, when he invited me into his house to show me that he wasn't some kind of spectacular Superman, that that wasn't what was on offer, uh, and that it was his humanity and the, his humility, the simplicity of his own life, that, that he lived a mortal and conditioned life just like the rest of us, that he had his own preferences and loves and and failures and successes in life that he was keen to show me. So rather than getting an immaculate guru, he was showing me by example that I could be myself, that I could be human, that he was human too. And so I shouldn't, I needn't vest myself in some kind of spiritual authority or some kind of power that was going to leave me in submission to some great being. Up I used to say we we should defer but we should never submit. And then most importantly, he liberated me from liberation, that is from the idea that there's something else or something more, some kind of unconditioned or supreme state that takes us beyond you know our humanity. Rather, he taught that liberation if we can talk about it at all is being free to be human. It's being free to live in this embodied life. It's, it's, about, it's about understanding the ways our limitations and our conditions and our embodied terms are, are truly the great gift of, of being born human.
And so he, he deeply humanized the project. He took it away from some kind of religious goal, and he gave spirituality for me an entirely different kind of meaning because in a very short time, I wasn't looking any longer to arrive at some kind of extraordinary beatific state or some kind of like, you know, enlightenment or, or superpowers or, or other sorts of kind of achievements that are ordinarily associated with these traditions. And in fact, he was keen to point out that that was one of the things that was going to make Rajanika so peculiar and so different was that we weren't after a kind of Raja yoga, a yoga of, of kings, you know, Raja, Regal, Lawa, the king, those are all the same word that take us back to Sanskrit. A, a Raja yoga would be one of complete control and dominance, one that manages the ordinary world to every advantage and, and to no disadvantage, and at the same time confers on, on the adept, the, the powers and the commitments that, that, that give that create some kind of spiritual or supernormal state. So you get both control and power over the world. You get to, you get to excise yourself or extricate yourself from the problematics of an everyday life. And you arrive at this enlightened state. Well, none of that is Rajanika. That's what virtually all the other yoga traditions are in some way or another trying to advocate or teach at least in their, religious forms. That's that's just the common description that any historian of religion would give us to you know what they were after and what they were about. But Apa's Rajanika wasn't about that. It was, in fact, about how we come to learn more sensitively, more richly about our human condition and, and educate ourselves about how we can incorporate all the facets of our lives, including our failures or our shadows or our regrets, um, all the ordinary human foibles that that accumulate and become part of a life worth living. And so rather than transcend them or remove them or arrive at some state where we're no longer subject to them or no longer in any way kind of bound by them. Appa wasn't trying to create a liberation that that took us out of our humanity. He wanted to ask, how do we bind ourselves more meaningfully, more deeply to our human condition rather than away from it? How do we arrive at an experience of of relationship in which we aren't fantasizing or 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 projecting on other people powers or wishes that make them superhuman or give them some kind of exalted or extra human status. And so in short, you know, I've been going on, but it's not, so it's not very short, but I, in short, he was really telling us that, that we should really rethink this whole guru idea. And as for these claims of liberation, those are religious claims, and we're not going to, we're not really particularly interested in that. Our yoga, our deep engagement with life is humanizing, and it's one that's going to bring us into a more humble and honest kind of conversation, one where the learning itself is a shared curiosity and a seriousness about living in our bodies and in our hearts and 
with all of us included. That is, all parts of ourselves, from light to shadow, from success to failure. We're all going to try to bring every part of ourselves together into that conversation. You know, when I once, um, once tried to call early on in our relationship, I once tried to address Appa, you know, like, and I didn't know what to call him. And um, in India, one would never address one's elders um, by their name. That would be far too, um, that would be far too froward and inappropriate. So I didn't really know what to call him. And so one morning, um, this was before I called him up. I, I, I stopped and I said, Guruji, and up, like held up his hand, you know, like the original talk to the hand moment, and kind of stopped me in my tracks. And he said, you know, if you call me Guru, you won't ask the serious questions. You'll believe the things I say. You won't examine the evidence for yourself. You won't come to your own conclusions. And so while we're going to study this concept of the Guru and we're going to examine it, and indeed we're going to criticize it, uh, we're we're going to take seriously that that the language here, and we're going to make sure that words matter. So perhaps it's best that you not call me Guru. Well, I was at a loss; I kind of didn't know what to do next. And so, well, I said, "So Abba, what?" I said, "I didn't say so Abba." I said, "So, so what shall I call you?" And he said, "Well, everyone in the house here calls me Appa. That's the Tamil word for father or for dad. Um, that seems to work. And if you feel that way, you can call me that." And so our intimacy was really directed away from, one might say, the traditionalist and ordinary goals of a tantric yoga or of the traditions that, from which we emerged away from the guru as a source of immaculate or incontrovertible authority, away from the goals of enlightenment or powers in the world, those are particularly tantric interests, and towards a more humanizing project and a more serious conversation about what it means to be human and about how to be more inclusive of all the features of our human condition, our human experience. So Rajanika really turned towards an education toward, in developing a keener sense of our of our humanity, and and to that end, it didn't ever give up on the images and the stories, the the pivots of philosophy, the the artistry, and the imagination that came with studying Shiva and Nataraja and the Great Goddess and the Sri Vidya. All of these becoming tools and methods and ways of gaining access to that conversation about our own humanity. Yeah, Appa really, you know, we see it in you, in the influence, the stories. Um, but I want to turn the conversation just maybe a little bit uh, more of the recent origins of Rajanika and, and ask you a little bit about that. You know, I we'll, we'll along this conversation, have more than enough time to... You know, talk about the differences between the uh, uh, bondage to freedom model or vice versa. Um, certainly the, the, the guru model won't be left out of this conversation. But give us – just give us kind of your personal history or, or maybe let me reframe it this way is how did – where did really like your teachings of wanting to offer this to us begin? And, and you know, we've got this um, – 
the, the kind of context of these podcasts is Regionica 101, so let's kind of keep the new person in mind. Um, because many of us that have sat with you, you know, we, at least experientially, we understand how they've, uh, you know, how this has evolved. But in ter- in the con- still within the context of the origins of it, um, you know, shifting it more towards where we came from with the beginnings of the teachings when you started to begin to offer it. Well, we're making this recording in 2019. That means that Rajanika, as I've taught it to folks in the West, is coming up on 20 years old. This will be our 20th summer studying together. And some of us have, have been there from the very beginning. It's been a really wonderful, evolving conversation. And, and to be honest, Doug, I mean, I just never thought we would get anywhere or any, we would get as far as we have or anywhere where we are today as a community and and as a conversation of learning, as a conversation of what we might just call in the the secular world kind of adult spiritual education with a real emphasis on on learning deeply um, sources and traditions and practices and uh, the study of mythology and the study of ritual and the study of philosophy all, all done together in a kind of magnificent room of conversation. That started... um, it started about 20 years ago, and um, you know, Appa passed away in 1994, and so he and I had had 16 years of study together from 77 forward uh, until his death, and during all those very many years, people had some idea of what I was doing and learning with him because those were the very same years where... I went from being a college student uh, through my PhD, and then the year up a past was, in fact, the year I was promoted um, to tenured professor at the university. So he had seen me through my entire professional education, and he was pivotal to that, of course, because in those earlier years, um, he was my professor at the university, technically. I mean, one of the great sort of stories and scams that I managed to have pulled off over these many years is that when, when I won the Fulbright in 1984, I was it was just an excuse to go home. the The application for that grant arrived on his desk because he was professor of Sanskrit at Madurai University, and I became his student, his PhD student, and his fellow at in India. Um, so I just got to go home with that grant, even while um, I was still of course, like doing my work at Harvard. So what really happened uh, was that for those first 20 years, that is, until Appa's death, uh, no one really asked at all about about my personal interests. And there was no way, particularly, that people outside the academic community would have would have known to ask. Or this was before the rise of what we would call yoga today. There were no were no really uh, yoga communities studying philosophy or studying history and com- and having these conversations pati- with any particular seriousness before the 1990s. Um, it was in the 1990s that I began to make connections to the yoga world that we understand it, as we understand it today, and I was invited uh, into those conversations through a host of relationships and invitations that were drawing me out of the university 
and into those worlds. We'll pause there and just say two things about that. Um, Abba's death in 94 came upon us all very suddenly. He was diagnosed with metastasized colon cancer and uh, and passed very quickly within six months. And I was, I was deeply at a loss, and, 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 and sadly and ironically, of course, that was the very same time my own academic career had reached a kind of kind of fulfillment for me. Um, I was ready to be tenured and promoted as a, as a university professor just as Uppa died. And I came to a, a kind of profound personal realization and a problem uh, as it crystallized with his passing and, and with my own quote-unquote success in academia. And that is that I hadn't done this to become a scholar for the sake of you know writing the next unreadable book or attending the next scholarly conference or doing the next thing that the academy was asking me or what the profession was was inviting and demanding i feel comfortable to say that that i did that and i continue to make those contributions because that's my job i mean that is that's my profession as well and i don't mean to discount it and i certainly don't mean to sound ungrateful or in any way disinterested i'm still very much a scholar and interested in in that work and and Uppa was too um and yet both of us i think entered scholarship and the serious study of language and history and and philosophy and and this complex studies of comparative mythology all the rest of it i think we 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 both got there because we were spiritual seekers because we wanted to know what more and what else there is in, in this human life that that could teach us and tell us more about ourselves and about each other, about how to live a good life. And so when I first began to make these contacts um, outside the academy, it was almost exactly at the same time that my own career had reached a place where I had some some opportunity, you know, one of the things that academic tenure confers upon you is a, is an enormous privilege to pursue your own curiosities and carry on. And, you know, the academy usually expects you just to keep doing that thing you've always been doing and, and do more of it and more of it, you know, just write the next book or go to the next conference. And, but I think that there's also plenty of room in that world of becoming professor that, that you're allowed and being conferred a great privilege to pursue your own deep interests, your own curiosities, that maybe, in fact, you don't just write the next book. You go and, and have now the privilege of learning and the privilege of taking those things that you've spent a lifetime doing and bringing them into a bigger world. Well, that's very much the way I saw it. I didn't see my life kind of carrying on inside you know, the ivory tower or inside the limitations of the academy. And so it was during this time that I received a handful of invitations to speak outside the the academy and to get to know some people who also had some interest in a spiritual life. And and those who and it was also coincided rather luckily and strangely with the rise of interest in what we would now call asana yoga or modern postural yoga. So it was during this time that I was invited to the City Yoga Ashram in South Fallsburg, New York, and 
I worked with a handful of other scholars who were also invited into that context, and we taught um, and were invited to teach the things that we had learned with openness and with honesty. And I think we we accomplished that with some success. And and it was also during that time that I met John Friend, who was just in the midst of creating his own school of modern postural yoga that came to be called, of course, Anusara. Now, what happened uh, after that is is a, is a part of our our histories together. But um, that was a launching point for us, and it was through John and his immediate teachers and the curiosity of that community that extended out of the yoga world that brought me into the yoga world, rather by accident. Um, it's an old kind of tradition of Rajanika that we're not, we're not here to preach to you. We're not evangelical. There's no message that we particularly are trying to spread. We're not a growth industry. Um, that's kind of not where it comes from at all. And so it, it, it works on a kind of interesting irony that goes back even to my relationship with Uppa, and that is that you, you get what you ask for, and yet you don't quite know what it is you're asking for, and you don't know quite know how to ask. And so how do you come upon this enormously enriching and serious body of learning and tradition when you don't even know that it's there or you don't know how to ask for it? That can be a whole other conversation, but basically it was through John and his senior students at the time, um, somewhere between 1996 and 1999, that um, I began to have a, a role in the yoga world as we know it today, and, and which was enormously rewarding and continues to be rewarding to me personally because it coincided exactly with losing Appa and and feeling so desperately alone and isolated in my own my own personal learning and search i mean i had no plans to become a public teacher or to create a public community or be part of one and participate as we have now for nearly 20 years um, learning together and having this conversation that was not in the plan there was no plan for that I, I didn't even really intend to end up, you know, a college professor or or work in a university. Those were all just ways for me in the early days to continue my curiosity and to spend as much time as I could in India and studying with Sundramurti because he was such a remarkable and gifted person and you just wanted to learn from him. And my my own kind of greater curiosities of learning in literature and art and, and in the Western canon and in other subjects, those were all just personal to me. To turn them into academics was was um, a way of legitimizing or a way of kind of just being able to continue to do it. When I was invited um, by people in the yoga community to come into their studios and to come into their their worlds and to give seminars and talks to start kind of the conversation that would give them a basic understanding of the history of yoga and the, the ideas and the concepts that kind of flow through this material. That was all by accident, really. I mean, the invitations were quite deliberate and quite serious, and I give John Friend a lot of credit for wanting to have that initial educational experience for his teachers and for his students. Um, and it, But it was those students and 
of his that that were the first very serious Rajanika students, and they didn't really know that they were what they were in for, and I didn't really I didn't really anticipate that their curiosities or their seriousness would persist. It all just started as a kind of a seminar here, a seminar there. And then folks got more increasingly interested and more kind of deeply committed because I think they saw that this really is a great conversation and there's so much to learn in philosophy and art and myth. Um, Those are, are such important subjects to us. And that there were opportunities that we would have if we could create, you know, an adult community of seekers and of learning together. And most, mostly it just happened by, by one thing after another, by people curious and serious and sincere like I was as a kid. And then being approached by those folks to, to do what I know how to do, uh, which is read the texts in, in, in the original languages, teach the material as I learned it, give you some experience of, of how to enter into this magnificent conversation that roots itself in the history of yoga, in these images and stories and, and ideas. And so that really happened um, between uh, after Uppa's death in 94. And again, I, I need to be really honest here and say, you know, I, I was, I was hurting and lost when I lost him. I was, I had, I had thought, you know, I had, I had gone through so much of that project of, of gaining university tenure with the idea of bringing him here, letting him retire in the States and becoming this emeritus professor of Sanskrit and working beside him for the rest of my life. And we would just carry on. And I had absolutely no ambition or objective or idea that we would create a greater community. It it just didn't, didn't even occur to me. My, my life was centered on how to carry on this conversation. And for what it's worth in the first 16 or more like 20 years of our study together, there really wasn't anyone who, who came you know, looking for what I had learned. People had been my students, you know, at university. I've been at Rochester since 1986. I've had all kinds of wonderful and serious students of the subject, but that was college. That was academics. Um, and my, my personal life was, had nothing to do with that academic world in a certain way. I kept those things very private and very separate, but it was in the, in the middle nineties that, that the instigation began to talk in public um, and the curiosity of seekers coincided with the rise of asana yoga. And that just happened to be coincidental. Um, all of it, all of it being kind of a Leela, a play of the world and the peculiarities of karma by 2000 or 2001. Um, what we understand today to be Rajanika as a as an incipient community was well underway as a conversation its boundaries were clearly taking shape because uh, John Friend and I parted ways in 2009 formally and had very little contact after that and I had long dissociated myself from from uh, City Yoga that being a conversation that began somewhere around 1993 and ended in 99 formally. So, so I had quite moved on, and until then, um, I had done a 
I thought an honest job of, of talking about the histories of yoga for those people in their communities. But by 2000 or so, people were saying, well, what did you learn? And how did your teachings and what did your, you know, how did your teacher explain these things to you? And in fact, no one had really ever asked me that before. Before that, I was explaining to others the, the basic histories and teachings in the yoga traditions as an educational matter, and in particular communities that weren't um, that weren't Rajanika, I was trying to help them too uh, in understanding themselves and in understanding this material. But it was only somewhere around 2000 or 1999 to 2001, somewhere in that world, where things really took off where people said, well, what do you know, and, and what do you think about this? And having never been asked that, it was, it was wonderful. It was revelatory. I wasn't sure how it was going to be received, because Rajanika is revolutionary. It, it has, has a lot to say about, about gurus and liberation, and it, and it wants to change that model and, and move towards a deeper humanism. And... I wasn't sure how it was going to be received, but the easiest thing in the world for me to do in a certain way is, is to try to take all of the things I've learned in a scholarly way and, and try to translate them for, for everyday understanding to people who are curious and serious because that's who I was. That's what I wanted. That was always my, my passion, my real job. You know, working in academics or, or working for other folks explaining traditions or teachings to them that's that wasn't that that was something i could do um that was part of my legitimation that was part of my job but that's not who i was when finally somebody you know people began to say well what do you think and who are you in this subject that's when rajanica started and that's how it's continued and little by little and again and again we've gathered you know dozens of times and hundreds of times a year sometimes and and the community is far and wide, and we 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 are now something I, I never even imagined or even tried to create. Now there was no business plan, there was no objective, there, there was no idea at all. It was let's get together and have a conversation, and then people finally kind of asked me about my own conversation, and now I think the goal is to allow people to create their conversation. Um, again, Rajanika isn't. A catechism. It isn't a body of specific teachings or ideas. We can talk later about just exactly how we go about this. But it was given to me, and 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 I was allowed to make of it what I wanted for myself. And whenever I teach anything, um, it's an offering to others that I hope they make. They take what they want from it. They they learn from it and and bring it into their own lives, however they choose and in whatever ways they want. And with there's no, like I said, there's no list of beliefs. So that's not what we're about at all, and that's not how we go about learning. Um, we learn together, and everyone takes it to heart as they see fit. That started um, now some twenty years ago, and I'm I'm surprised, I'm delighted, I'm I'm honored and, and humbled by the idea that anybody's interested. And again, remember, the first 20 years, nobody asked at all. Uh, I had plenty of time to think about this for myself. Um, but there you go. That's about the beginnings of it. Yeah, I've, uh, I guess, been studying some of your materials as introduced to the 
on him on CDs about 15 years ago. And you and I met in Tucson um, in 2009 when uh, Poised for Grace was released, Darren's studio there. Um, and it's it, it has been well received and people are making of it, you know, what they want and what they need. I can speak to that personally um, from my own experience. I can speak to that from conversation with others. Um, and it's, you know, I don't, won't go down the rabbit hole of everything happens for a reason because we know where that leads, but that, <laughs> <laughs> that Leela, that play, um, as you know, we, some know the history of what happened with Anasara, some don't. Um, I suggest if anybody's curious, pull somebody aside that does and just have a quiet conversation about whatever somebody will share. But, um, that to me was a, a tipping point in terms of forming this community for, for a variety of reasons that I won't really touch on, but, but that's, that's kind of my observation. And. Well, I, I'm very curious about, uh, about people's introduction and, you know, how they came into the community and, or how they came to a seminar and, and, and then came back again and how they've then taken whatever it is they've learned and brought it into their lives. Um, I'm very happy that 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 people come and they go and sometimes I don't see people for years and then they show up again but we've always we've always tried to be ourselves and not lose the plot and 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 not aggrandize or and so we certainly don't recruit in any in any way we're we're curious people studying together um some really fascinating and, and complex material. We've created different venues to do that, you know, social media venues on Facebook. And now we have the new Regionica website and we have courses and, um, we gather at my house for what we call Regionica summer camps. And, and I just can't believe where it's all gone. It's, it's uh, amazing to me that, that people are taking it to heart. I know they are. I'm delighted that they make it their own. That's really important to me. I'm not interested in controlling uh, in it or, or in any way sort of directing the show. That's sort of not how we, how we roll, as you know. But I am really interested in how people come to it and where their introduction was. There are folks who just came to a seminar. There are folks who go back to the Anusara yoga community. And then there are those who have nothing to do with that. You know, Rajanika now is, really is 20 years old. And as I hear you say, Nature, you know, you entered about 10 years back. Um, and, and that I do think is a, as a pivotal time because, yeah. because we were really changing and, and Rajanika itself, you know, formally, as it were, changed, it took on its own responsibilities and went its own way uh, from Anusara. Excuse me, we were kind of dissociating ourselves uh, happily at that point, um, from one another, John was taking Anusara one way and, and Rajanika was moving on in its own autonomy. And I'm delighted that happened. That's the most important thing I think that did happen. That's why 2009 was such an important time for us. Um, and I think that, that where we go in the future is, is very much, uh, a continuance of this long and, and an interesting conversation that began. I'm really always happy when new folks show up. I'm surprised yeah. and delighted. Yes. You know, people come to a seminar, they get a little taste and they come back for a little more. And 
I want everyone in the room to feel welcome, you know, whether you've been there 20 years or whether you've been there, whether it's your first day. Um, it's a learning community. And in that sense, we, we try to, we try to be welcoming. Um, even when we try to keep the learning moving forward, it's always a real challenge. Um, say when we gather in the summer, we do this thing that we call Rajanica summer camp. We can talk about more of that. That's kind of a joke that we call it summer camp, but there are folks who have been coming, you know, to my neighborhood in the Finger Lakes of Western New York for some 20 years now. And there are people who are going to show up in that room for it's the first time. Sometimes it's just the very first time they've met me. And so they're entering a 20-year-old conversation. That's pretty remarkable in and of itself. <laughs> and we try, yeah, it is, we really yeah. try to like, keep that welcoming, you know, like make everybody feel comfortable um, and, and not bore the old timers and feel welcoming to everyone who's there for the first time and, and carry on and let everybody dive into the deep end of the pool wherever they find it. It's a, it's a kind of an adage of Rajanika thinking that we're always in the middle of things. So it seems interesting and ironic to me that we're having our first conversation here about origins, but in fact, um, we're always in the middle of a conversation. There's always been a lot of, a, a lot of past, you know, a lot of history behind us. And hopefully a good conversation has promise, you know, it, it has a future. So wherever we put ourselves down, we're always in the middle of it. And the complexities of life um, will allow us to drop in and drop out of those conversations. And part of what we want to do is make everyone feel welcome. And part of what I hope we do as we go forward in podcasts is we we offer up some information that lets people learn and, as it were, gain a richer and more um, inclusive feeling of the teachings so that we can continue to progress, we can continue to move the conversations forward. There's so much more for us to study in mythologies and ritual, in practice, in literature and philosophy and poetry together. And I want to keep moving forward. So part of what we can do is uh, create a conversation that brings people, as it were, you know, kind of up to speed. There's so much to learn, and and um, and yet we want we want to keep growing, and we want to be inclusive. Like I said, we're not recruiting, but we are inviting. And yoga is always an invitation; it's never an obligation. That's very much one of its important definitions for me. And that is an important definition for me as well. I've got a friend I'm heavily recruiting, <laughs> um, and he's coming along nicely, but. Uh... Thanks to you well, by the- that, I think you mean you're just inviting him um, to listen and to learn. Um, yes, I get nervous yes. When, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, I get yeah. nervous when, <laughs> yeah, no, I get no, nervous when people yeah, say we're recruiting. Not, we're, yeah. yeah, no, we're, we're, we're not doing the cult thing. No, he, he, right, you know, right. somebody trying, you know, he's seeking, and I'm just trying to, you know, supply him with stuff that, you know, hopefully um, kind of guides him along and he can make his decisions along the way. I mean, that's, you know, really, I think one of the most important things with just, Rajanica, as we all make our own decisions, um, but uh, I'm very much an old, very much an old school seeker. You know, I, I think everyone has a yearning in their heart uh, to feel to feel more deeply, to know themselves uh, more lucidly or or more richly, uh, to deal with their own situations and contexts, their own their own selves and circumstances, and that that's very much what I call a spiritual practice. Uh, wanting to learn about oneself, wanting to learn how to create a better conversation with others, a more inclusive conversation, 
how to how to live a life of conscience and and make oneself a gift to others. I would say that's the heart and soul of Rajanika. Yeah. So I, I kind of view of everyone as a seeker, everyone who at least is on that kind of a path. Yeah. All right. Um, I think we'll wrap it up here. Um, kind of got an idea, I think, where we're going to go next. And uh, you know, look for that. There's going to be, I don't know how many episodes we'll do here. But, um, yeah, you mentioned the website, rajanica.com. You know. You guys come and please visit it. We've got everything from courses to crows and everything in between. Um, we're really trying to make it a community effort. So if you have a contribution or anything that you want to, you know, feel like you want to share with the community, you know, please get a hold of us. Let us know. Um, we're, we're open and willing to listen and have that conversation. Well, I want to thank you so much, um, Doug, for for doing these these first podcasts and. Because I would like the, sort of the origins and, and the story of Rajanika to be more accessible to those who are curious to find out. I think people already found out that I kind of go on a roll. I, maybe next time I'll try to give you a lot more space to ask your own questions. There's a lot of history here, and, and um, I'm happy to tell it if, if you're curious to hear it. But thanks so much for your commitment here and for just trying to make what we have to say and learn together something that other people can find out about. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. Thanks so much.